You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. One hundred years had passed since Jonah went to Nineveh to proclaim its destruction. Assyria sat smugly on her throne, having recently conquered Israel, because Israel had disobeyed God's commandments. Assyria then invaded Judah and tried to conquer it. The Assyrian general taunted Hezekiah, the king of Judah, by boasting of Assyria's power and great deeds. But God spared Judah because Hezekiah was a good and righteous king, and Assyria was run out of the country. Yet God wasn't done with Assyria just yet. God had a message for Nineveh, Assyria's capital, and it was delivered through his servant, Nahum. Good morning. How's everyone? Good. Well, I am Mark McNelly. In case that you do not know who I am, I don't get into 940 very often, so I am uh, very pleased to be here this morning. I preach in the Outreach Center a lot. So um, I am excited to be here to carry on our message series in the Minor Prophets, most of the Minor Prophets, and today we're looking at Nahum. I want to start off by asking you a question. Have you ever learned something about someone that gave you a better picture, a more complete picture about who they were as a person? Raise your hand. Okay, that's pretty common, right? I remember when I first came to faith about nine years ago, um, I, I was really fascinated with Mother Teresa, her story, her going overseas and pouring out her life for the, for the poor and the, and the lepers and the children. And so I uh, started looking into her story, and then after her death, I found out that her journals have been read and combed through, and there was this side of Mother Teresa's relationship with God where she felt distant from God, where she had seasons uh, where there were these wilderness seasons, and she didn't feel the presence of God, and, and she knew what she was called to do, but she didn't have that daily, personal, tangible connection to God. Have you, have you heard that story about Mother Teresa? And I thought, man, you know, what that does for me when it looks at her entire life is that actually magnifies her, her faith and her, uh, the beauty of her obedience. And, uh, but it gave me a bigger, more complete picture about who she was. And then a more sad example is uh, there was a, um, a, one of my aunts and uncles were kind of this model family in our larger family, and I remember looking up to them. I didn't have faith, but I knew that they were people of faith, and my cousins were always just really solid and, and people that I could, I could count on, and, and I just, my uncle passed away a couple of years ago, and um, it's come out now that my aunt was actually very verbally abusive um, to him for decades, and that really kind of completed a picture for me. There were some uh, issues with the cousins and, the, and some dynamics that are now explained by that. I didn't know it before. But learning that fact about that family dynamic and that 
relationship between my aunt and uncle gave me a more complete picture and explained a lot about what I could see happening many times. Now, you transpose this principle on God, and what we find out is it is very, very difficult to know God without seeing the full and complete picture about who he is. Now, let me give you some examples. There are uh, Christian teaching and preaching. You can podcast, you can YouTube, you can read books. You can, you can read books, right, Jason? All right, you can go to Jason's office. He'll give you books. And I promise you 90 plus percent of that content will be on the love and the grace and the mercy and forgiveness and compassion of God. And is that a part, an aspect of the character of God? Yes and amen. Google the most famous and popular books of the New Testament and you're going to find the Gospels. You might find Isaiah, one of the major prophets, and Jeremiah. Famous verses, most favorite verses of Christians. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Hey, yeah, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11, I'll throw a prophet in there. Very popular. It's on pillowcases and bumper stickers and t-shirts, all right? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a future. Now, these are all beautiful verses. They expose the nature and character of God's love and care for us, but they are leaving a void, and the void that we need is given to us through the whole of Scripture. That's why we're going through the Minor Prophets. Little Books with a Big Punch is the name of this sermon series. And it's so exciting to be going through it. I promise if you Google famous or most favored uh, verses or books of the Bible, you're not going to likely come across Nahum. <laughs> Nahum is a minor prophet who, as you heard in the video, is writing around the time of 610 to 620 uh, BC, and he is coming on the scene in Nineveh. Uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with the story Jonah. Okay, yeah, Jonah comes along and, and God asks him to preach repentance to Nineveh. He runs the other direction. Great story, four chapters of a minor prophet. Jonah comes back and he preaches to Nineveh and they turn to God. Fascinating, most, the biggest revival in the history of the world in Nineveh. And then four generations or so later, Nineveh has turned their back on God again in very dramatic fashion as we're going to hear from the scriptures. You see, we have to read scripture like Nahum. We have to understand characteristics about God like his judgment for us to fully see the complete picture of who God is. A.W. Tozer was a preacher, author, theologian in the mid-1900s, and I love this, my favorite quote of all of his very good quotes, and it says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? How complete, how full is that picture of who God is? And why is it important for us to understand judgment to see that picture fully and completely? Well, in the book of Nahum, I uh, love to kind of summarize. I like Twitter. I like 140 characters. I like to keep it, you know, nice and neat. And so what I would point us to to summarize the entire message of Nahum before we get into more of the weeds is to say there is a biblical principle that is laid out for us in Proverbs and that the apostles James and Peter 
bring to us through the New Testament, and it goes like this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Confirmed by Old and New Testament principles, and Nahum brings a story of God's judgment on a very wicked people and a protection of his own people that illustrates this beautifully. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, there's three aspects of God's judgment that complete, completely show that picture through the book of Nahum, and I want to look at those. In Nahum chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to pick it up and see how God does this through a pointed judgment. Oh, wrong scripture. I am your enemy, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Your chariots will soon go up in smoke. Your young men will be killed in battle. Never again will you plunder conquered nations. The voices of your proud messengers will be heard no more. What sorrow awaits Nineveh, the city of murder and lies. She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. Hear the crack of the whips, the rumble of the wheels, horses' hooves pound, and chariots clatter wildly. See the flashing swords and glittering spears as the charioteers charge past. There are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies, the people stumble over them. All of this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all of her magic, enchanting people everywhere. So this idea of pointed judgment, I love the fact that Nahum, along with other scriptures, show us that God is very specific about the things that he is going to bring judgment on. Now what I mean by that is he doesn't just leave us hanging. He doesn't just say you're going to be judged. Is that one of the most annoying things for you whenever you get told to do something by a boss or back when you were young, a parent, but you don't really know what it is? You're like, there's this vagueness to it and you don't really know how to respond. It is never that way with God. My wife, Caitlin, and I have a five and seven-year-old, and our favorite disciplinary tool is to take time off of their bedtime. We can do timeouts. We can do a lot of different things to try to discipline. But if we make them go to bed early, uh, that's judgment time <laughs> for the kids in the McNally house. And so what is odd, though, is we will kind of count that time up. Oh, that's 10 more minutes off your bedtime. Are you going to listen? You going to behave? 10 more minutes. And then we'll get to the end of the day. It'll start to roll around 7 o'clock and we'll be like, so what was it that we put? What did they? Kinsley, do you remember what Mason did that got his first 10 minutes off his bedtime? And I was thinking, how can we not remember at the beginning of the day what it was that we were bringing discipline on our children for? And how different that is than God. God is never missing a beat. He's never looking the other way. He is never shooting shots of judgment in the dark. There's no cryptic code in scripture about what it is that God is going to judge and what it is that he isn't going to judge. It's very clear. In fact, we have some things that Assyria was putting their trust in that we'll look, we got a list right in Nahum of things. Their wealth, they were putting trust in their wealth. God, God says, do not do that their walls. They had built up this fortification of safety and security, and they thought that they could keep everyone out. Their natural defenses, they were strategically, geographically located on a river supplying endless water. Their strong and victorious army, they had built up an army that was able to conquer nations and build the largest empire of its day. 
their pleasure and sensuality. There's uh, illusions throughout Nahum of them just becoming decadent as a nation. Their intellect. It is found in the archaeological uh, findings. It's not mentioned in Nahum, but there was a library that was epically huge at the time. 22,000 stone tablets of knowledge and information and education. All of these things that they are putting their trust and their faith and their security and their identity and hope in, God says, I am bringing judgment on that because those aren't things that you can trust in. You can only trust in me. And not only are you putting your trust in those things, you have become an oppressive nation. You have built your wealth. You have built your walls. You have built your libraries on the backs of the poor and the weak and the hurting and the marginalized and the tiny nations, and you've rolled roughshod right over them. And you've thought that judgment wouldn't come from that. So God does not leave us guessing. Nahum is, produces one list for us. The scriptures produce, produce lists of how God's heart is very pointed toward what it is that he is in opposition to and what it is that eventually, because of his goodness, he has to bring judgment against. The next aspect of how God opposes the proud is through patient judgment. Let's look at Nahum 1. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. Do you remember the timeline on Jonah? That Jonah preaches repentance and then he waits four generations. Now, imagine a nation who is completely repentant and commanding everybody to be obedient and faithful to God. And then four generations later, they are how Nahum describes them to be. The human experience, the human heart teaches us that we very quickly can turn ourselves over to evil, unfortunately. But in that, throughout the biblical narrative, throughout God sending prophets on the Old Testament, his own people, and in these cases, last week and this week, on, on people outside of the nation of Israel, is that God is slow to anger. Think about waiting to become angry and, and to, to respond to somebody who is oppressive and evil and unjust toward you or your family for your whole lifetime. We wouldn't wait a day or a week, would we? We would respond somehow. God is in heaven looking down on, on injustice and oppression, and he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In the New Testament, it says the Lord is patient, wishing that none would perish but all would come to repentance. Now, in the slow to anger, there is a timetable. And if you are somebody who likes to have a lot of clarity when it comes to all aspects of your faith, uh, the Christian faith is going to be a tough one for you because the timeliness when God does decide to step into human history with judgment is something we just do not know. Jesus tells, that, tells us that about the final judgment. So when it comes to God's judgment... We're going to look later at how that isn't our business, it's God's business. But in the timing aspect of this, we wait. And we understand what's coming, but we don't know when it is. And we trust that to God. And we live in that tension. It's not always an easy tension to live in, but we live in that tension. The third aspect of God's judgment in the principle that he opposes the proud is a protective judgment. 
Now this is where the prophet Nahum gives us some nuggets of God's protection for his people. And it is a beautiful thing. Chapter 1, verse 7 reads, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. He's telling his people, your enemies who threaten to destroy you, I will take care of that. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from you, off of you, and will burst your bonds apart. So, I don't know about you, but have you ever, uh, do you like watching movies more than once? Raise your hand if you like watching movies more than once. I do. And I know I need to like uh, spread my experience in movie watching out, but when I find one I like, I, I watch it. I've watched Avengers probably 13 times. All right. I've watched Dumb and Dumber probably 30. You know, I, I just, I love to lock in on a movie and watch it over and over. And what I've noticed is, oh, The Sixth Sense. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I've watched that one quite a few. Anyway, my point is, when you watch a movie even the second time, doesn't it, like, change? You're, you're not on the edge of your seat the second time. The twists and turns come, and you're not twisting and turning with them. Internally, you're not kind of drawn in and emotionally disturbed or comforted as much as the first time? Do you have that experience when you watch a movie the second or third time? When you understand and trust that God's judgment is ultimately protective and redemptive while we don't understand the timing, it's like watching a movie the second time for you. Because these twists and turns come in life and, and things get happened to where you are wronged or people that you love are wronged or the, the nation's rage and, and war and famine kill many and oppressive nations seem to be winning the day. But you know what? When you trust in the prophecies of Nahum and the character of God and the goodness of judgment, you can be like watching a movie a second or third time and go, okay, God's got this. If I really trust and believe this, then I can trust and believe that all who don't turn back to God will have their day. And I don't have to be their judge. God can be their judge. And that puts us at ease. When we have injustice and oppression that happens in our life, and our nation, and our world, that can begin to put us with a sense of ease. Now how, as New Testament Christians, do we see the fullness and the complete picture of the nature and character of God? That wasn't a rhetorical question. It's a Sunday school answer. Come on, help me out. Anybody? How do we see the full and complete picture of the nature and character of God as New Testament Christians? Jesus, thank you. If, you ever, if you're new to the church or Christianity, if you ever get asked an open-ended question about our faith, you just say Jesus. All right? Works almost every time. Jesus gives us, it says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He is the the image of the invisible God. Everything that he did, everything that he said, gives us a full picture of God. Now let's look at those three principles that Nahum gives. The first was that, is that God has a, a, a pointed judgment. So what I didn't like about the teachings of Jesus so much before I became a Christian uh, was the fact that he taught about specific things, like not to be angry, like to forgive, like don't do sexual immorality and all these things. I didn't really want to listen to any of that. Now that I've become a Christian, 
and you open up the Gospels and you read the teaching of Jesus, you're like, okay, he doesn't leave this wide open. There are some things that he's very specific, specifically giving me to do and to be. So Jesus' teachings are very pointed, which is a good thing. Jesus is patient. Think about how long that the Trinity, that the Godhead in heaven since creation, waited and waited and waited and waited and waited to come the first time in the person of Jesus to do the work of the cross and resurrection. And then now the centuries and the millennium that go by while God is in heaven, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, wishing that none would repent, or (laughs) wishing that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Can Taylor, can he clip that on the video? Okay, that was... The third thing, that that Jesus is protective judgment. He is giving us this picture, Jesus is, of mercy and judgment. You know, a lot of people think judgment is exclusively an Old Testament thing, and then Jesus comes along and there's no speaking of judgment. Jesus spoke a lot about judgment, around a dozen times very specifically about judgment. But he decided as a man to take that judgment on himself and to make a way for us to experience what God's people would experience in the story of Nahum, a protective judgment. Through our trust in him, we get mercy. Let's look at a a verse where Nahum points, I believe this is a at least indirect, if not direct prophecy toward Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 15. Look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all of your vows. For your wicked enemies will never again invade your land. They will be completely destroyed. So what I love about Nahum is that he gives us this picture of imposing uh, impending judgment on Nineveh, and it gives us principles about why God is a God of judgment and why that is good news for us. But then he also gives us something to do. He tells the people of Judah, his people of the day, celebrate your festivals and fulfill all of your vows. Here's in a nutshell what he's telling them to do. Trust judgment to me and then worry about the things that I've asked for you to do. On Memorial Day, um, I love the imagery here of what we see as New Testament Christians in Sunday mornings, in worship, in and through worship. As a nation, we remember um, the soldiers that fell in generations past and the current for us to have the freedom of democracy that we have. As Christians, that happens annually in our nation. As Christians, We enter those doors every Sunday for our own Memorial Day. Celebrate your festivals would have meant the the Passover festival was was the biggest. And and the festivals of the Jewish people of the day were to remind them. They would gather together and they would remember no matter what it looks like today, God has delivered us and he will deliver us again. That judgment comes, but redemption is the final word. Even the purposes of judgment is ultimately redemption. And so celebrating our festivals looks to us as Christians like coming to worship, gathering with God's people, 
as KJ said, being open to awkwardness in worship, being vulnerable, becoming open to know other Christians in a deep way and celebrate this fact that God chose to come and take the judgment on himself for us. And that is something that when it fully drops into the deepest, darkest areas of our heart, drives us through those doors. A lot of times we come through those doors, and I did today, with my coffee, and we sit down, and we're like, okay, what's KJ got for us today? And what's... When we understand the beauty of redemption, the beauty of the fact that God has delivered us from our enemies, the enemies within us and the enemies outside of us, we run through those doors and we celebrate the festivals, as Nahum told the people to do. Celebrate the festivals. Remember God has delivered you and fulfill all of your vows. Fulfill all of your vows is another way of saying the teaching of Jesus, uh, which my dad, who wasn't a Christian, taught my brother and I, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do what you say you're going to do and trust that I'm going to do what I've said that I will do. How many of you have read the book The Shack? Raise your hand. It became a pretty popular book a few years back. Okay, have you seen the movie that just recently came out? Oh, quite a few of you. Okay. So um, in the movie, uh, the main character, Mac, has his uh, daughter abducted um, and brutally murdered. And his wife has a deep faith, but he uh, grew up uh, very abused by his father. And his father was a Christian... Uh, elder in the church, but a closet drinker and abuser. And so he has this really warped sense. He doesn't have a complete and view and full view of God at all. And so once this event happens to his daughter, he is, he turns inward. He judges God. He is sitting in the judgment seat of not only the one that abused his daughter, but of God. And he is bitter. And it, right? Those of you who have read the book, and he doesn't want any part of forgiveness for anybody. That guy needs to pay. And then in the book, Mac ends up going to the place where his daughter was brutally murdered, and he meets with God. He meets with the Trinity, actually. Now, while I don't necessarily agree with all of the theology of the shack, it's not a theological treatise. It's an allegory about the nature and character of God. And one of the things that the book focuses on is judgment, because God knows the thing that is plaguing the heart of Mac is that he is choosing to sit in the seat of judgment that is only rightfully taken by God himself. And so in a scene, in a classic scene in the movie, I feel like he gets drawn into this cave and there's this big seat, stone seat up in the top of the cave and he's asked to go up there and sit down. And so he sits down and the images of all these different people that Mac has and is judging are, are flashed across the screen. And the character, the, the woman in the, in the scene, she's like, so judge them, so judge them. Okay, so judge them. Okay, so judge your dad. Okay, did you see your grandpa and how he raised your dad? Okay, well, let's see that. So judge him. Do you want to go further back? How about the dad of the, of the person who abducted your daughter? Do you want to see that? And you see Mac just, I mean, his teeth are gritting. He's like, yes, judge. <clears throat> At the end of that scene, he falls to the ground and he says, I don't want to be the judge anymore. I, I'm, the character says, look, this goes all the way back to Adam. How far back do you want to go? Mac finally gets it. There is somebody, if I will put my trust in that person, while I can't explain everything, that is rightfully positioned through their nature and character of the fullness of God and perfection, 
He's the one that sits in that seat. I'm not qualified to sit in that seat. And in that moment, he gets to see his daughter, and it's, it's a very touching scene. But I wonder how many of us have trouble trusting the ultimate judgment of humankind, of nations, of people, of oppressors, to a holy, righteous, and good God. I know I do sometimes. And if you get nothing else from the prophet Nahum, Nahum would say to us today, Jesus would teach, trust the big picture, eternal judgment of people and nations. To me, it's not your place. Trust it to me. Trust that I am good. Look through the lens of my cross and resurrection and trust me. I love you. The people, he told his people through Nahum, just trust in me and you'll find a refuge in that. Will you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, thank you so much for these little books with a big punch. Um, help us to embrace them. Help us to look, through, look at them through the lens of your son. Help us to find aspects of your nature and character and attributes that give us a complete picture of who you are. Remind us that you are working throughout history to make all things right. Help us trust that to you. Help us to make that ultimate choice to step out from underneath your judgment and into your mercy and protection. Do this for our good, for your glory, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.